Hello and welcome to Smith and Sheridan on Biotech, a podcast on the science and business of biotechnology, presented by me, Cormac Sheridan. And me, Andy Smith. Hello, Cormac. Hello, everyone. Hi, Andy. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks. How about you? I'm doing okay. And I'm at the same time trying to stretch my weakened brain around the usual flood of announcements that appear in early January in or around the JP Morgan conference in San Francisco. It sort of marks the beginning of the calendar year in a major way for the biotechnology industry. This is the meeting where people set out their wares, announce deals, if they've nothing to announce, they might tell us that they've bought a new boardroom table. It <laughs> seems that every Tom, Dick, and Harry in the biotech industry feels the need to say something in the first week of January. And it's something that I have failed to understand why in the last two decades or so, because obviously the smaller news announcements will get completely washed away in the big flood coming from, from the, the top table of the big deals by top tier companies. So I've been looking at some of the transactions. I know you've been looking at things been happening in January and pondering whether or not we'll get momentum into the new year. Is JP Morgan and all that goes with it still just a crazy news time or are things quietening down? And is that because of the industry slowdown or are people being a little bit more selective about when they choose to announce certain deals. Yeah, I, I share some of your skepticism on this. You know, when I was an investor, having attended the JP Morgan conference for, for a number of years, in more recent times, it seems to have grown beyond its competence, if you like, or been promoted beyond its competence. You know, because there are business development directors for pharmaceutical companies going around to see biotechnology companies all year round. The thought that you could squeeze something into, let's delay this deal, or we've got to hurry up on this deal so we can get the announcement at JP Morgan is a bit passe these days. But your comment on momentum is very germane. And that's because the JP Morgan is in the second week of January. But we had a great December in terms of deal making. It was a bumper month and it pushed the Nasdaq Biotech Index up by quite a few percent. And that's because pharmaceutical companies are now saying that now, you know, on, on the cynic in me would say, so why didn't they delay them like they did in previous years into the JP Morgan conference? I think that answers your question that it's perhaps not the showcase for deals they've done in previous years. But I remember reading on social media, people saying, yeah, this bodes well for the JP Morgan conference, because if this was the number of deals in December, what's it going to be like in January? My view was that we had... I think three or four, depending. I mean, Novartis, I think, did two RNA ideals on the first day of the conference, GSK on the second day of the conference. And then don't hold your breath because you'll be asphyxiating. So the JP Morgan conference, in my view, was a poor comparator, a poor relation to December's, even the last two weeks in December's deal flow. The deal that kind of caught my eye the most in the last few weeks was for Europeans who like to enjoy a proper Christmas break. This was uh, pretty unforgiving, but it was a very noteworthy deal. I'm talking about the Bristol-Myers Squib acquisition of Ray's Bio, the radiopharmaceuticals developer. 
that was done on what you call in the UK Boxing Day, what all here in Ireland, St. Stephen's Day. Anyway, for those who are not interested in Christmas, it's the 26th of December when members of the biotech community might be digesting their turkey or whatever they may have had. Or skiing um, in Lake Tahoe. Yeah. In, indeed, actually, indeed, indeed, indeed. It was far from Lake Tahoe. I was rare myself, <laughs> but uh, I take her point. But Raised Bio has been a very, very interesting company from the get-go. I remember covering their Series A round back in 2020 and very smart people led by Ken Song, the CEO I remember one of the early stage investors was Versant Ventures, and they had a very simple thesis. And the execution has been extremely efficient, so that they did an IPO back in September at $18 per share when they raised $311 million. And the BMS offer on the 26th of December came in at $62.50 a share. Or $4.1 billion in total or something like that. Yeah, and netting out their cash on their balance sheet, 3.6 billion net. I mean, that's an extraordinary amount of value creation for a company doing what quite a lot of other companies are doing now, radio pharmaceuticals development. And it is, I mean, it just illustrates that whether it's life or it's biotech or it's investing, you need a lot of luck or you need a good portion of luck. And the first generation radio pharmaceuticals that came to the market there were a lot of problems about the storage of the material, the transport of the material, where patients could go, who they could talk to afterwards when they were possibly emitting radiation. So the first generation was a bit of a damp squid. But in this last year or so, Novartis have blazed a trail with radio pharmaceuticals. And cometh the radio pharmaceuticals time, cometh raise bio. And, you know, they were in the right place at the right time to be acquired by BMS as they look to take on the oncology franchise of Novartis in radio pharmaceuticals. And it's also interesting, BMS, obviously their big, big play in recent years was their buyout of Celgene for 70 billion or so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Celgene generally took top billing at the JP Morgan conference yeah. in bygone days. And they they had this kind of A-team of business development executives that scour the world doing deals left, right and centre and built quite an interesting portfolio of assets. Raised Bio is a different deal entirely for BMS. I have a sneaking suspicion it's going to be a very successful one for them, but that's just a, a hunch. I don't think it's based on, it's not based on any particular insights other than the fact that I think Raised Bio had a very clearly articulated strategy and to get the level of buy-in from BMS that they've gotten, it bodes well, I think, for their portfolio but on their pipeline. But obviously, they've yet to actually get a product to regulatory development. Mm. As you're probably a better place to talk about the BMS cell gene tie-up than I am, do you think that has been a kind of a transformative for BMS in the way they might have hoped it to be? It was, absolutely but for nowhere near as long as they hoped it would be, because you make this big acquisition of cell gene and then knock me down with a feather a few years later, then the lead product that you bought it for, Revlimid, lenalidomide, goes off patent. And then it's a small molecule, so it's easy to get ANDAs approved. So within that short space of time, they suffered quite a lot of generic competition. At the other end, as you talk about, you know, cell gene... Can I interrupt you there? But they yeah. that would obviously have been 
well known at the time of the deal negotiation. There was no surprise to that. To that. Oh, uh, Cormac, never underestimate the potential of business development directors to do a deal because they need to do a deal because their objectives say you need to do this deal and ignoring the fact of the investment case. But you would hope so, wouldn't you? But I don't know. But Surely back- there would be a certain internal scepticism against any particular deal on a table. I mean, everything has to be thrashed out. Yeah, well, you'd think so, right? But when I worked in a pharmaceutical company, and it was more than 20 years ago, possibly more than 30 years ago, I worked in SPD, Strategic Product Development, and we would spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on market models and market research and pay, even in those days, payer research or at least you know trawling payer databases and come up with these models on how much we should pay for these acquisitions. And you'd go to a pharmaceutical review board and the chief exec would be there nodding and re- and we would say, uh, for example, uh, we shouldn't pay more than this because it would never recoup that money. And the chief exec, on one occasion, just turned around and said, I don't care, just do the deal. Do it. So sometimes these home. We have an announcement to make at JP Morgan next week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're very dramatic. <laughs> so sometimes transactions happen not for the best or most logical reasons. But then going back to Celgene and its plethora of early stage deals, it did. And it got, it did. It populated the news flow that came out of JP Morgan for years and years, didn't it? With these early stage deals on companies you might never have heard of. And then when Bristol-Myers actually bought them, you would get then another plethora of deals of Bristol-Myers dropping those particular transactions. So fair enough. Well played, Celgene. It led to your acquisition by Bristol-Myers Squibb, but tangibly not as much as perhaps was hoped came out of it. Mm. And of course, it's a different proposition, obviously, from looking at a company that has a strictly defined focus and a much smaller pipeline than was the case with, with Celgene. In terms of this year's meeting, I guess the biggest acquisition outright in terms of deal terms was J&J's acquisition of Ambrix, an ADC developer. ADCs, are they hot? Yeah, they are absolutely. I mean, I refer listeners to our previous podcast on antibody drug conjugates. But yes, it's, again, another sector that's come from a wilderness period with the first ADCs. But then in the last year or so, they have really taken off. And it's a combination of we're much better at antibody engineering these days. And then the, I think ADCs also encompass to some respect, radio pharmaceuticals, but also bi-specific. So you could have a bi-specific ADC even. In fact, it gives you more things to stick your payload on. But yes, so ADCs up and coming. And in fact, they're like radio pharmaceuticals. They featured in the deal flow in December and the deal flow, as you pointed out, at the JP Morgan conference. Much more so than last year's meme of the year, the GLP-1 agonists for diabetes and obesity, because all those transactions all happened in December. And I've not really seen one from this year's uh, JP Morgan conference yet. And, no, and yet it... but Novo Nordisk has been spending some of its cash, not necessarily on skinny jabs, but they've done two deals with... Uh, flagship pioneering-backed startups, one with Amiga Therapeutics and one with Celerity. Mm. And I think these are interesting deals because they're kind of very much early-stage drug discovery alliances. Celerity is looking at AI-driven drug discovery using single-cell transcriptomics. Omega is 
pioneering a class of drugs called epigenomic controllers. Mm. The deal with Omega is in obesity, the deal with celerity is in MASH, formerly known as NASH, now called mm-hmm. metabolic, metabolic function yeah. associated steatohepatitis. So these are total potential deal value is $532 million for each without disclosing what the upfront is and what the potential milestones are. But this is interesting that Novo, its coffers are replete with cash and it's getting out there. And what's also interesting to me is that it's not moving into new areas. It really is still sticking in or around its kind of core areas of metabolic dysfunction, obesity, diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, hats off to Nova Nordisk for doing this because you think back to the midst of the pandemic when Pfizer and Merck, in fact, with their pandemic products and even their surrogates like BioNTech and Moderna were riding high both with... Excuse me, I'm just going to call you up on the term surrogates. Well, yeah, <laughs> I was trying to think of alternatives. I mean, Moderna and BioNTech were actually the innovative originating companies and these were their commercial proxies. <laughs> Fair enough. But um, they could have taken those billions of dollars that they generated at that time or you know, shortly after and bought most of biotech. You know, Pfizer could have done it as well and Merck could have done it. And yet it took a long time and for stock prices to recover that made the CGN acquisition much more expensive. They stood back more. They brought in the pandemic revenues and they stood back and says, this is great. Hats off to Nova Nordis. It's almost when you're given lemons, Nova Nordis don't just make lemonade. They make a lemonade factory and a lemonade franchise and a global distribution thing. So that they're actually going out to own cardiometabolic disease, which by doing as many on-target or on-franchise acquisitions and collaborations as they can. And I think that's great. I mean, don't leave it till another year or so or two and other people come along and perhaps even the GOP ones start to see competition. So you've heard it here first, folks. Andy Smith has just christened Novo Nordisk, the Beyonce of the industry. <laughs> That's a fascinating insight. <laughs> and I didn't check back. Obviously, every company dipped during the pandemic. I presume though Novo's franchise sales were less affected because it didn't require hospital attendance the way a lot of oncology drugs require. Yeah, and in fact, a lot of companies actually sales surged in that first quarter of the pandemic development world because people were worried about, you know, there's no stockpiles. We won't be able to get our drugs. It never actually happened. You didn't run out of insulin or, or stuff or other medicines, APIs from China. It didn't actually happen. But the first part of the pandemic was reasonably good for the pharmaceutical sector because there was lots of stocking yeah. up all, all the way along the uh, manufacturing and distribution train. Yeah. And don't forget, of course, the share prices rose during the pandemic. They dipped. Yeah when the pandemic was starting to peter out, even though yeah. it's not yeah. yet fully, I guess we're in the endemic phase now. But two other deals, though, I'd like to kind of bring to your attention that were announced in and around the time of JP Morgan. Two deals by Isomorphic Labs, a UK-based company who are part of the Alphabet organization. Mm. And they're measuring an alpha fold and predicting protein structure and using very clever ways of predicting drug protein binding as well with AI. And they've done their first deals with Eli Lilly and Novartis. Early stage deals, I guess they're probably at the discovery stage. I have no idea whether there's any chemical matter involved yet or not whatsoever. And, you know, it's healthy upfronts. Eli Lilly paid 45 million. Novartis paid 37.5. 
Novartis is doing drug discovery against three targets. The Lilly deal doesn't mention how many, but it's probably a slightly bigger deal given that it's 1.7 billion potential milestones versus 1.2 on the Novartis side. But this to me is kind of, if we're talking out with the old and with the new, this is kind of what looks like very much the next generation of drug discovery. This is very smart stuff, well above my Mm. And fair enough. I'm sure with AI looking at chemical space and receptor structure, there are still new drugs to be discovered that couldn't be discovered any other way or have been discovered before. But my worry is how many of those out there, you know, because dumb structure activity relationships for 50 years have been putting chemicals in assays with targets and coming up with drug hits. So potentially there are more things to come out with the how many. What does the business case for these AI companies look like longer term when they've had the one or two hits and they've got very small, and these are early stage deals, very small royalties on those products if they get to the market. And then they've done that. It reminds me of years and years ago, I worked for a pharmaceutical company that cloned the uh, the whole genome of a pathogenic bacteria 10 years before it was even published in nature and we screened all the open reading frames all the proteins screened them for lethality and then had the robots working on those proteins 24 7 finding inhibitors to them we found some great antibiotics put them into mice and the mice all died So we might be hoping for too much from this AI discovery, but I'm sure something will come out of it. My concern is that people are expecting it to be the panacea, the next leg up for drug development, where it's it's a service business, right, Cormac? It's not those individual businesses. They're a service business to pharma, a bit like a CRO or a CDMO. Yeah, but this isn't your average CDMO doing what an average CDMO does. And I'm sure isomorphic probably don't describe themselves in those terms. And I suppose the, even though it's been more focused, I suppose, on the medchem side of the fence rather than the uh, target, but Exientia, another UK firm, I guess, is a sort of an interesting comparator. It's a bit more mature. It's further down the line. And they're also doing some interesting things on the biological side now too, But that's a very clever company. I think that's kind of very cleverly married AI with conventional expertise in medicinal chemistry. And we've seen this business model transformation potentially before. We've looked at service companies that, you know, I've got early stage royalties for this potential drug, but it's not going to pay my bills going forward. So perhaps we should use our own algorithms and things to generate our own drugs. And then the yeah. costs go up and they sound to investors like another biotechnology company, right? And that's fine. I mean, if you have a, a cutting edge platform that's competitive, I mean, it, it, this is the playbook. You do a couple of eye-catching big deals with pharma. You do your own in-house work. You might license them. You might go all the way in an addressable indication or else you sell out at a certain point and make money for your investors. I mean, that's what they do. Yeah. And it depends on the expectations, both of the management yeah. and the experience of the management and the investors. But you only have to look at benevolent AI in the UK last year, 2022-23. You know, they got to the stage where they did the bit where they morphed from AI services, or they still do that, to, to pharmaceuticals, to developing their own drugs. 
and their first drug went into clinical trials and failed. So those risks are part and parcel for biotech investors. But the investors in AI companies that are an adjunct to drug development might not have that same risk profile or expectation for failure, if you like, that have worn us down over the years. And I haven't looked at Alphabet's financing background. I haven't looked at Isomorphic's financing background, but if they're hitched to the Alphabet bus, if I'm not mixing my metaphors too egregiously, there'll be no shortage of funds. Yeah, yeah. They have something investable in it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, for the sake of completeness, not for the sake of my enthusiasm, I do think we need to note the GSK deal with Iolo's bio, because it's a billion dollar plus another 400 million in regulatory milestones. But it's a Me Too drug. Basically, it's an antibody for asthma, AIO001, a long-acting antibody directed against antithymic stromal lymphopoietin, which is a kind of a interleukin-like alarming molecule. And that pathway is active in asthma and I think some other inflammatory indications. Yeah, COPD, asthma, yeah. Yeah, so there's already an existing drug shared between Amgen and AstraZeneca, Tezspire. So this is potentially a drug that might have more convenient dosing schedule. Other than that, I'm not sure it actually offers a whole lot, but it's just a kind of a a little bolt-on for GSK's pipeline, I guess. Yeah, I think the TSLP, or as the uh, the Cognoscenti call it, T-slip, is an interesting target, both in respiratory and perhaps more in general in, in inflammatory diseases. But on the business side, the GSK deal was spot on. GSK, amongst a few other companies, Novartis, AstraZeneca, are respiratory powerhouses. And from the other side of the coin, it gives any companies that they do a transaction with in respiratory medicine quite a lot of validation because they know their onions, right? I mean, GSK also know about long-acting monoclonal antibodies, as do most pharmaceutical companies. So it's sort of, and you know, that validation also comes from, as you said, uh, the AstraZeneca and the Amgen molecule that's in the later stage. So it's it, actually approved. It, it got approved. Oh, it's approved. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yes, approved. So you see one company making the headway. And then it may not be the last T-slip transaction we see see this year because there's obviously a a need for it. There are needs for medicines in COPD. Obviously, Sanofi's and Regeneron's Dupixent molecule might well be approved this year in that indication, which will be the first biologic for a long time to treat COPD. And COPD for smokers is an awful disease because your FEV1 goes... I mean, our FEV1 goes down over time anyway, right? But smoking just accelerates that and you have difficulty. So, yeah, potentially to have these disease modifying or disease stabilizing by addressing these new targets is quite exciting and and obviously commercially viable. So as the industry digests all the news of the past week or so and people get back to their offices, their home offices, their garden sheds, their executive suites, wherever they do their business from. 2024, is the industry kind of uh, picking up now in a way that's going to be assured? Or is it just a little short-term bouncer blip? Is confidence returning to the markets? Is 2024 going to be a sort of a year of recovery or not? Oh, good rhetorical questions, uh, Cormac. I'm not sure I could put, look into my crystal ball and, and look to the future. But I think you know, the thing uh, listeners should take away from is JP Morgan is a conference where lots of people meet and mingle. 
and discuss and chat. And not all of them, as we've seen this last week, not all of them announced deals that day or for that day. You know, there, there were discussions and business cards exchanged. If you do that sort of thing or whatever it called, 3D barcodes scanned these days, that will, as soon as they get back to the office next Monday, they'll be setting up Zoom calls and Teams meetings for early stage discussions, some of which will ultimately end up in deals that happen later on this year. That's good. That That is getting back to biotech business as usual, and which we both hope for, right? Yes. And it's always nice to have something to write about talk about at the same time i know too though it, it can be impossible to try to sort of summarize the state of the industry the state of the world in a few sentences because it's incredibly complex and there are a thousand or more transactions that get done a few of them get talked about mm. trying to discern patterns in any of this would require maybe the use of artificial <laughs> yeah. data analytics dare i say it <laughs> <laughs> but in the weeks and months ahead, as you said, discussions that get initiated at the start of the year will find fruit in deals. And, and that's the business of biotech. Yeah. And to orient listeners, you know, we've had our first podcast on the wilderness years. Are we still in the wilderness years? Well, perhaps we've emerged or perhaps we are emerging. We're certainly not in the bubble period, are we? But perhaps we're on the way to emerging from those wilderness years. Yeah. And I don't know what the opposite is of a wilderness here. It's an oasis, Comek. It's an oasis of transactions and... Okay. So um, on that hopeful note of mm. green shoots, we'll say goodbye for now. See you, Andy. Bye-bye.